So I have two kids. Teplin is almost seven years old. He's a first grader. And Wiley will be three in November. That is Becca Cajal, the super awesome co-founder of Duct Tape Thin Beer. That's where Elizabeth and I work to produce Safety Third. Becca is also my de facto surrogate mama bear slash business helper human slash relationship guru slash adventure educator slash high fiver of emotional support. Or, as she puts it, the unintentional life coach. <laughs> Little did I know that when I was hiring him that that would be part of my job. Becca didn't read the fine print of my contract. That's where it says to hire me is to hire all of me and the things that I need. Any hoozle, as part of our research for today's show, the Rage Kitty and I sat our boss down for a little chat. So do you remember the first time money came up with your kids? I do remember the first time that money came up with Teplin. He he was always interested in finding, I think like a lot of kids, quarters on the ground, pennies on the ground. And we were trying to explain to him that a penny was different than a quarter, which I think is always a very interesting thing for kids to kind of start to grasp like a, a symbolic meaning of money that money has. And I think his first real exposure to the financial part of money was when Fitz would need um, bus fare. And Teplin's piggy bank was often the only thing in the house that had quarters or dollar bills in it. Right. Um, you know, as we've moved much more to a credit card society, there's not a lot of cash around. But he's had a piggy bank since he was about two that came as a gift. Well, and don't you guys have, don't you guys have like this um, three piggy bank system? Yeah. So one thing that we are starting to instill in our family, and it's something that I heard about from another friend, is, is this idea of three piggy banks. And that you have one piggy bank that's for saving and one piggy bank that's for spending. And that the, there's a third piggy bank that's for support or for donating. Teplin is used to the saving part. He's going to move into the portion where he's spending. And with both of our kids, what I want to start instilling is this idea of support. And so it's money that you spend but you don't get a tangible product for it, that it is a emotional support of something that you care about. And that can be supporting the zoo where you love to go, supporting a particular animal in the zoo. But I think that, you know, our, our culture is very focused on products and new and like get, 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 get. And, and I do think that trying to talk about not getting the newest thing and understanding that you that we have a lot and that we have a lot to give is an important thing that I want to teach with him. And that's both with time and like kindness on the playground. But I think that there can also be a financial aspect of that too. And that hopefully it's going across the, like his entire life and all aspects of his life. And so that it feels much more natural. And, you know, again, with Teplin, and I'll focus more on him just because he's older, he does have that instinct to care for others. And I think that it's also important to start introducing that into their financial lives, for lack of a better word. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, so he is understanding that and understanding that. 
All of this was on my mind when I spoke to today's guest, Len Nessifer. Len has a PhD in philosophy, engineering, and public policy. He's a member of the Navajo Nation, a professor at the University of Arizona, and the creator of Natives Outdoors. And when he told me what he believes, my wheels got turning. I believe we should think about the outdoors and our wild places as a trust. Is there a fiduciary relationship between outdoor folks and <clears throat> the outdoors? Should there be? And how do we shift our relationship with money and life experiences if we didn't grow up with Becca's three piggy bank system? Let's find out. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. I grew up on the Navajo Nation. Um, I come from a family of uh, uranium miners, traditional healers on my mom's side. Um, and on my dad's side, he's from Detroit. Um, the city of Detroit, people say they're from Detroit, but are actually from the Burbs. Um, and so that side of my family are auto workers. I spent a lot of time in Kansas um, going to school, but in the summers and winters, I would spend out with my family in northern New Mexico, northern Arizona on the Navajo Reservation. And so, yeah, I mean, sort of when I think about my outdoor times, we, it was like me, I was kind of the youngest of my cousins, but it would be me and my cousins like herding sheep up from uh, the winter camp to summer camp. And so this was like from yeah, seven, 8,000 feet up to 10,000 feet in a mountain range up there. And um, you know, it would just be horsing around out in the woods out there and, and we'd be climbing on rocks and doing all kinds of stuff like that. But, you know, it's so funny because I, I was always having to be the translator between the two sides of my family because, you know, I would go to Detroit in, in the middle of December for Christmas to visit my grandma and grandfather who, uh, never at, you know, been to a reservation, but you know, I just, it, it's, it's just kind of funny in retrospect, having to try to explain a Navajo ceremony to a couple auto workers, you know, in Detroit. <laughs> it's like... I bet that would be difficult. <laughs> but, you know, they were willing to try to entertain the thought, but, you know, I think when I grew up, it was always kind of having to like, um, uh, sort of, a adapt to the context that I was in um, and sort of just, you know, you know, just change hats, you know, or whatever, change kind of the different identities that I share is uh, from those perspectives. And, and as a kid, spending a lot of time with your grandparents in the Four Corners, I heard a story about how you used to gather uh, firewood yeah. with your grandfather in the Grand Gulch. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? I spent a lot of time with my grandfather, who was a traditional healer. Mm -hmm. And he, um, you know, taught me basically how to gather plants, how to, you know, be outdoors, how to be respectful, but also this sort of ethic of reciprocity. Um, is that, you know, the sense that you don't take more than you need and everything, every time you take something, you give something back. Um, and, you know, he always explained it as something that like, this is what we do because this is, you know, if we continue to do this, um, we'll be able to enjoy this and use these plants for generations to come. Um, we used to spend a lot of time out in the Bears Ears area and 
um, doing ceremonies there, but it was, uh, I think, I think a pretty formative experience into when I think about being outdoors was through his lens and, you know, being there, it's a pretty delicate environment, you know, the cryptobiotic soil, the, the droughts, I mean, all of these things. And it was just sort of, it was, he gave me the sense of awareness of being, um, aware of the place that you're in and understanding that, you know, we, you know, nature's powerful, but humans are also very powerful in, in damaging it as well. And so he was very formative in that sort of perspective in, in how I recreate now and how I go outdoors. I've read in interviews that as a kid, you had a very difficult time feeling proud about being Navajo. Yeah. Well, I mean, just for context, you know, my mother and all of her siblings were... I mean, that whole generation of Navajo folks were kidnapped and put into uh, residential boarding schools. And, you know, they, they would beat kids for speaking Navajo, put putting soap in their mouth for speaking Navajo, and just kind of really um, instilling that sense of, like, this identity is not worth it. And yeah. um, But that's transferred, you know, intergenerationally. And, you know, I came from a family where I was really proud, but, you know, all of the signals I was getting from the rest of my peers was like, this wasn't cool. And what was it like to grow up with traditional Navajo healers? Right. Yeah, it was, it didn't, I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's like anyone. It's like, how, how was it to have your grandfather as a proct proctologist? You know, I, <laughs> he was, it was, it was kind of interesting because, um, you know, he lived in uh, Shiprock, New Mexico. And so during, during the summer, you know, or not when I was there during the summer, he would have people coming to his house every half hour from like 8 a.m. to like 7 or 8 p.m. needing help. I mean, mm -hmm. these are people that were, you know, uh, so like sort of just to give context of what a traditional Navajo healer does is that um, there's different kinds, but my grandfather was a uh, one that kind of did the diagnosing or like kind of would figure out what was wrong with people. But it would be... Um, Everything from people needing some therapy <laughs> to like people actually physically ill. Um, and then he would point people different directions about who they should go and see. And so, um, you know, it was, it was something that um, felt pretty normal. It's like, you know, oh, yeah, he's, you know, he has to go work basically. Right, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it just happened to be working out of the house. Um, but, you know, he was able to provide a lot for my family and to going to school through that, you know, and I think that was um, pretty, pretty special. And did you participate in any of the ceremonies or, or rituals that were happening at your grandfather's house? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, one of the sort of core beliefs and tenets of Navajo, like the ceremonies aren't really a religious practice. They do have some elements of that, but it's mainly for healing people. Um, but we have four sacred mountains that are in Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. And those play such a key role in the songs that are sung, the the ceremonies that are done. They're always referenced. Is It's always, it's a sort of belief system that's structured around mountains. And part of what I helped him with is like, you know, he would make sand paintings, for example, and we would make the uh, sand paintings of those mountains. 
And it was always just sort of this ever-present thing in my life of like, oh, mountains, mountains, mountains. You know, I think that was been one of the key pieces of the ceremonies was just kind of that understanding of like these places are so, they're like so connected with our identity and who we are which I think is super cool. And like one of the things that I've seen is really awesome is that, you know, the more time that people spend outdoors, they're starting to have these sort of inklings of this, you know, I'm a part of this place or this place means so much to me and and are having really deep experiences. But I think at large, there's this, there's not really the, in, in the broader U.S. society is that there's not this, this sort of language that can embrace that in a way that, you know, doesn't make you sound like a hippie. Um, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, 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 totally. As soon as you start talking about any kind of like love or appreciation of nature, it doesn't really matter what your background is. I mean, everybody kind of looks at you and is like, you make your own corduroy. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Totally. And that's been always the funny line that I've had to to thread is like, I don't want to sound like a hippie, but it's also like, I do come from, yeah, that sort of context where it's like so normalized, you know, it's like not even a question. Well, did any of those like um, ceremonies or rituals that you participated in with your family, is there one specifically that stands out above the rest as being kind of impactful to you? Yeah, you know, there is... Uh, there's some pretty cool ones. Um, we have a ceremony that we do for veterans returning from war, and it's called the Nidat, which is like the, it's like translates as the enemy way ceremony. But um, it's sort of mm-hmm. this it's this sort of process of reintegrating someone back into um, society after they've um, experienced you know war and. Um, it's a pretty neat process. Basically, you have two sides of the family and a broken arrow that each side of the family brings. And, and they um, <laughs> literally go out in the woods, not in the woods or desert or whatever. And they, 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 both the families will go towards each other as if they were two parties of war um, going to battle. And then wherever they meet, they bring those two arrows together. And that's where they do the ceremonies outdoors. Mm. And that is really interesting because they will, you know, it's like, I think it's five days, if I remember right, that they spend out there. But part of part of the ceremonies involves burying the veteran underground, like up to their neck. And oh, wow. what they for what they then happen is that everyone in the, I don't know how long they do that. I think it's like, a, it's, it's a quite a bit of time, but like they, they then everyone in the community or that in the, the families feed and take care of the veteran when they're, you know, basically it's just their head (laughs) above, above the ground is that they feed them. And I think in a way that this serves a purpose of, I think, re sort of re-solidifying that connection to like, you know, the community cares about you. You're a part of this place and everyone's here Mm -hmm. to take care of you. And, and, um, the other part of that is it's it's sort of this symbolic thing of burying sort of the things that you're carrying and kind of putting those to rest. Do you remember one of those ceremonies uh, as as a kid? Yeah, so like the that sort of iteration of that ceremony um, I did for myself. So when um, both of my grandparents passed away, um, it was a pretty traumatizing event um, for me. Because uh, I was in college and I was in, you know, going to school in Kansas, which you know, you know, it was, it was a culture shock uh, again. But yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, 
and and I think one of the thing why well, did a part of that ceremony that we call the Hachonje, so that the enemy way ceremony is a composition of many different things, like many different sort of smaller ceremonies into one day. And I took a piece of that. And at that point in my life, I was, um, I, I think now in retrospect, I was going through some pretty severe depression. And I went, I remember I took, it was like a Thursday and I just was like, I got to get out of here. I got to just do something for myself. I have to get outdoors because, um, you know, I come from a place that's so scenically beautiful and having to give that up to go to school and be in Kansas was just so disorienting. And um, so I just went home, flew to Albuquerque, and then my mom picked me up and then we immediately drove four hours out to <laughs> like uh, the base of uh Black Mesa on the res, which is like the remote of the most remote parts of the res. And so we did this ceremony um, to sort of bring closure to that sort of the deaths of my grandparents and then also just some of the other challenges that I, that faced me. But that was that was really unique because um, it was uh, I was it lasted about four hours, maybe five hours. Part of it involved the traditional sort of house, uh, like housing of Navajos is a hogan. It's an eight sided structure, but in there, the medicine man dug a hole in the dirt in the dirt floor and basically made a sweat lodge like for me and where I sat over mm-hmm. the dirt hole there's coals in there and then they started putting blankets on me and I started sweating under this thing but at the end of that they made these sort of they call them offerings or tokens that you give back to sort of um, acknowledge you know in my case both my grandparents that had passed and we walked out north from the Hogan and I we walked out I don't know geez like I don't know mile mile and a half, two miles, just kind of beelining it straight over everything in the desert. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. Uh, but we buried those. And, um, uh, and you know, that's sort of to signify that, you know, we're just putting to rest and sort of making peace with what's happened. But on the way back, you can't look back at where you buried those and you can't look at where you're going. You just have to follow. And it's just kind of this really contemplative oh, wow. space of just having to reflect on everything that you went through. It was a powerful experience because up until like, I remember in like for about a year of my life, I was a smoker, you know, I'd smoke like three, four, five, six cigarettes a day. And like right after that, I just had, you know, that sort of craving to smoke and all of that was gone. It was just wow. still to this day, I don't know, maybe the depression was cured. I don't know, but it was like a very, it was a big turning point in my life. And um, you know, for me, I'm not a very religious person. Like I don't believe in higher powers or higher forces. You know, if I were to define what my spiritual practice, what if that faith can even call it that, I don't even know, but like, what are like kind of, what are the spaces where I feel rejuvenated that's being outside? And, you know, I think with Navajo, my sort of interpretation of Navajo ceremonies is that they kind of, they tap into that. You know, I think about, mm-hmm. you know, that, that feeling after you've spent like a solid couple days in the mountains or doing something really physically engaging like that sort of feeling and that sort of view that you get of the world is really what that Navajo medicinal practices have tried to institutionalize and make Mm -hmm. um, a part of people's experiences. And so, you know, the, the sort of on the psychological side of what these things do is that it provides a space for like reflection. It provides this opportunity to kind of um, reflect on, you know, these larger challenges or, you know, whatever may be facing someone and, and getting people in a good headspace to kind of then move forward in, in facing these challenges. 
Coming up after the break, Len faces some of those big challenges. After Len graduated from the University of Kansas, he earned a Ph.D. in philosophy, engineering, and public policy from Carnegie Mellon, as well as the official title of Smarty Pants McGee. He got a job at the U.S. Department of Energy headquarters in D.C. Then he moved to Golden, Colorado to work at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And it was around this time Len fully dove into mountaineering. While he could hang his hat on these accomplishments, Len still struggled with his Navajo identity. Not personally, he was proud of who he was and is, but he had a hard time claiming that identity in public settings. He says he was fighting negative stereotypes about what it means to be Native American. And he felt when people knew that was a part of his identity, they didn't always show him respect. When he was living in Pittsburgh, one of his neighbors jabbed, I thought all of you were dead. Ugh, that is awful. But Len's return to the mountains meant a return to empowerment. I think really what changed that for me is, uh, you know, I think being in Colorado, I was living there for the past three years or so. And up until that point, I hadn't, I had done some outdoor stuff, uh, some climbing, some, a lot of cycling and mountain biking. But I think being in the mountains and really having a desire to get the hell away from front range people and like kind of push me <laughs> higher and higher into the yeah. mountains and like further and further up to these like uh, chossy peaks and gnarly stuff. And I think kind of being really physically empowered and te- like having the technical knowledge of how to be in these places safely was like, I got to a certain point where I was like, oh, I, you know, I want to go up this peak, but I don't know how to set up an anchor, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, I just started learning that stuff. and Or, you know, ski mountaineering is a thing that I really started getting into um, there as well. And mm-hmm. I think having that experience of empowerment in the mountains and knowing that I can be out there safely and do some really gnarly shit. And, and then coming back to this, that sort of core belief system of what it means to be Navajo is based on these four mountains, you know, and these mountains are our identity. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh yeah, like, I guess I am a mountain person. You know, I remember my grand grandfather talking about this place as, this is a place where you learn. This is a place where you come to understand things about the world. And he's always said like, you can learn what you can learn in the classroom, but you're really going to learn the most about yourself being out here. And you know, it, that didn't really click until I stood, started doing scary shit in the mountains. It, the sort of feeling of... I don't even I don't even know if this is right to say, but like the feeling of stoke is like what Navajo Nation or Navajo like medicinal practices try to encapsulate. And I think in a way it's like I, I see that as being connected to landscapes, whether it's skiing or being on a bike or running or whatever it is, it's um uh-huh. uh it's continuing that because so much of my identity as a Navajo person is being connected to place. In your pursuits in the mountains, did it feel like you were carrying on a Navajo tradition? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, the these landscapes, like people have, oh, geez, like have been in this area for 13,000 years. And I mean, yeah, just, people... Just a smidge of time. <laughs> yeah, a smidge of time, right? And it's just like, yeah. at some point, someone got really curious or got really stoked and like went and climbed some mountains back 6,000 years ago, you know? And right. I, yeah, I yeah. think... I, I think it's just this, you know, I think being able, for me and my identity of what it means to be Navajo is being able to move across landscapes 
regardless of what they are, you know, and being comfortable being outdoors. And I think that was a really big formative point. And, you know, granted now I'm like <laughs> moving across landscapes on a $2,000 ski setup, which I'm sure is not like <laughs> what my ancestors had foreseen, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Slightly uh, different. Same, same, but different. <laughs> yeah, same, same, but different. Yeah, totally. And it, But I think it's, it's that empowerment that comes from being in those places and knowing yeah. that these mountains are my identity. And it's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be these four sacred mountains, but like any place that holds significance to another group of people, it's like, I, I understand where that comes from. I understand where that originates from and I'm going to respect it in the same way. You know, like I grew up in Chicago. I went to school in Indiana. I moved back to Chicago after graduation and I just needed like the adventure out West. And to me, Colorado kind of symbolized that, that freedom and Uh that beauty. Um, And I, you know, I still live in Colorado. I love the state, but didn't you have like a bit of a different experience? Didn't, isn't when you moved to Colorado, wasn't that when you started to see kind of like trails getting trashed and people kind of creating yeah. social trails rather than totally. staying on established paths? Like, what? take me through that. Oh, my God. So, yeah, the first time when I moved to Colorado, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll climb a 14er. So I did, you know, did the standard list of things. And mm-hmm. um, just the amount of silly shit I would see that people would do on the mountain was just, uh, I don't, it was, it was... Like think, what would you see? Oh, I, I don't. I mean, I think uh, it was this, uh, not to trash on Illinois, but I'd see folks from Chicago just blasting up the mountain in their jean shorts, you know? And it's just like, oh, my <laughs> God, you're crazy. You know, like, no, like, it was this kind of sense that, like, these mountains are powerful and they can kill you, you know? And I think one of the things is that there's so many people moving to um, um, the front range of Colorado and going up in the mountains, but not really understanding like how incredibly dangerous these places can be. And were you you also seeing not just people kind of like ill prepared, but were you also seeing kind of like, uh, mistreatment? Oh yeah. I mean, like, I think, I mean, one of the things that I see in a lot of 14ers is that people don't realize that like the Alpine tundra is incredibly delicate and, um, it's, you know, as much as you can stay on the trail and, um, and and then there'd be times where like I, I I kind of at one point would tell people and like uh, people would get offended or kind of blow me off um, that they didn't care and that was I think pretty that stung yeah. and it really pissed me off. Okay, so this reminds me of Tommy Boy. I have no idea what you're talking about. Do you remember what Chris Farley is talking about trying to make a sale and he says it's like a pretty little pet and he picks up the dinner roll and he says I love it and I pat it and I stroke it and I kill it. Ah! <laughs> well, no, because I've never seen Tommy Boy. But... What? What are you talking about? I don't even understand how we could be friends sometimes. Well, I wonder that uh, all the time, but for different reasons. Okay. Well, if you had seen it, you'd know that like old Tommy Boy, we are loving the things that we love to death. Not everyone is on their best behavior when they're outdoors. And use is up across the board. Like, did you know that the national parks alone saw more than 330 million visits in 2017? And that is a lot of people. It's so many humans. That's so many feet. How about this? In the last five years, there have been 1.5 billion, with a B, billion parks visitors. So many humans. So many humans. So many humans. (laughs) There's so many. Yes. More people seeing and using these places is. Totally awesome. 
But more users also means more impact, more potential for abuse and misuse. So how do you solve that? Why should we think of the outdoors like a financial trust? You know, I think the we all understand dollars and cents. You know, you don't want to run your trust or your bank account or whatever, like you, these things that, to you know, to zero, right? You don't want to be running them negative either because that's not good either. But it's just kind of the sense of like, we're investing in our experiences, we're investing in p- other people. And I think, you know, landscapes can heal and they can, you know, be repaired, but it takes time. Um, and there's things that we can do as people to ensure that one, that we minimize our impact, but also that if we do have impact, we try to find ways to offset it. And, you know, I think it's hard to, it's sometimes it's hard to get people motivated to act on intergenerational sort of things of like, it might not be, uh, you know, it's your grandkids. Maybe people don't want to like, don't, aren't motivated by that. But one of the ways that, you know, here in our lifetime where it matters is that a trail can get screwed up by five years of poor management, you know, and it, those impacts can happen in our lifetime. And we just have to ensure that we're doing the things to one, protect our own enjoyment, but also protecting it for others as well. We inherited these landscapes and these places and it's of immeasurable value of the things that they provide us, you know, and, um, you know, the experiences that these mountains and these, these places provide. And so, well, what do we, what do we get from, from thinking of it like that? Like if we have a, a transactional relationship with the outdoors, what's the return on investment? Totally. The return on investment is one, just making sure we can, you know, you get to have your, your annual dividends of shredding the gnar. If that's like, (laughs) that I would love if I had a financial advisor that would tell me that it's like, yeah, you're going to shred the gnar really hard this year. Right. Wow. Awesome. You know, but it's, uh, (laughs) it's something that I've been really like, I think when we put the time in to put our financial resources or time to like protect these places, we're going to enjoy that for years to come because it means that the trail systems or different impacts that are had aren't going to just ruin our experience. And um, I think, uh, you know, that's something that I think, you know, unless, I don't know, there's, I'm sure there's folks that will disagree with that, but I think most people like understand what it's like to have one of your favorite outdoor places closed or have the access restricted, it sucks. But, you know, that's kind of what we're faced with unless we kind of then try to figure out different ways to, um, you know, on our end, influence the way that these places are managed. Len wants to push people to engage differently with the outdoors. He started by reaching out to his own community. In 2017, he founded Natives Outdoors. Natives Outdoors is uh, an outdoor apparel company. Um, we do do consulting, we do do storytelling, but we're really just trying to provide a, you know, through this platform as a B Corp, is that we're trying to provide this bridge, this conduit to um, indigenous folks to the outdoor industry. And that's everything from designers, engineers, athletes, um, artists, uh, writers, photographers, just to have a, have a, you know, a platform to make that happen. And in my mind, it's just a natural fit um, because um, so many, so many tribes live in so many scenic and beautiful places that, 
you know, this is an economy and this is an industry that can fit within the sustainable economic development for many tribes that allows folks to live and work in their own communities, which right now is a challenge. And so a lot of folks are leaving. And I think this is kind of an opportunity to um, sort of push the needle in the other direction. You know, for a lot of younger Native kids now, um, the sort of economies of sheep herding or the connections to traditional medicinal practices have has waned a bit. But I, I've been seeing um, an opportunity through recreation to um, basically get folks outdoors, but also trying to use that as a conduit, as a vehicle for um, providing these cultural teachings and also just sort of these understandings about how we interact with these places. And so I think that's, I kind of see the the rec thing as a vehicle for um, providing another outlet for myself and then also normalizing these sports and activities for my own community to say, hey, this is like, you know, we're not getting out there herding sheep like we were 30, 40, 50 years ago, but here's another way that we can continue to be outdoors and learn mm-hmm. about these places and have that classrooms still teach us these, these things about stewardship and like caring for a place. On top of that, Len challenged himself to change how he interacts with the outdoors. And that is why he invented the outdoorsy version of a swear jar. So one of the things that, you know, I started going outdoors and like doing, you know, the 14ers, skiing stuff, blah, blah, blah. And it just, it, one of the things that kind of came away from this, like, wow, like I kept reflecting is like something's missing from this, but I don't know what, it just didn't feel complete. And I was like, oh, basically I'm having an extractive relationship with the like environment around me. I'm taking experiences. And I was like, I'm not giving anything back, you know? And that was kind of a, that was a thing that I was like, I didn't have to do anything about, but I just thought it would be a really good opportunity to say, okay, every time now I go outdoors, I'm going to, you know, either sock away a few bucks and just say, okay, I'm going to then give this to POW or some other organization that's advocating Mm -hmm. for the protection of these places, you know, as a way to give back. Or, you know, the other is doing trail maintenance or doing, you know, if if that's a, that's one thing that I've done before. But I think having this lens that, you know, I'm a, I'm a guest here, I'm a guest. uh, And so it's like, you know, how do I, how do I conduct myself when I'm a guest in someone's house? You know, I um, proceed to leave trash everywhere and wreck it, but no, I'm kidding. Um, uh, But it's like, it's, 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 it's sort of the sense of like, um, you know, in terms of the, my recreation experience, I'm trying to view it as this give and take and trying to redefine that as, um, you know, I'm, you know, public lands are not free. I mean, we're all paying for it, but the public land system that we have now is incredibly underfunded. So, I mean, we have to do something, you know, sometimes it's like, well, I can give a dollar, I can give five, I can give 10, but I don't think in my mind, it's not really the amount, it's the action. It's like the, Mm -hmm. I, I think solidifying in my head that I'm, I'm taking something, I give something back. Uh, it's it's sort of reinforcing that sort of relationship. So I think, you know, in terms of traditionally, so just talking about where this comes from is that traditionally, like in, in the Navajo worldview, um, or sorry, medicinal practices, you offer corn pollen. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the offering that's given. Or, you know, sometimes it's a piece of turquoise or whatever. I mean, just real small pieces, but it's the action that matters. And one of my friends who's from the Red Lake um, Ojibwe tribe, 
she told me, it's like, well, if we don't have anything to give, we give a piece of our hair. And it's just, you know, traditionally, that's sort of the action. It's just simply reinforcing mentally in our heads of like, this is a, this is an experience that we're taking and we should give something back. I mean, why is, is it important because adventures outside make us better people? Oh man, I, I gotta say, it's like been so good for my mental health and I know for so many others as well. Yeah. But, you know, and it's also, you know, they call it Mother Earth Gym, you know, just go outside and crush it. And, you know, it's just whatever. It's 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 a, an opportunity for um, to address these larger challenges that we're facing. And, you know, I you know, sometimes I wish that some of our politicians would have like, you know, a day of shredding the gnar. And I think they would be different people. But you can't wish that for everyone. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder if members of this uh, current administration, like what would happen if they went on a river trip? <laughs> You know, oh yeah. You know, I I have a couple I have a couple ideas of who I would put on Groover detail, but other than that, I think they would be changed <laughs> yeah. in some way. <laughs> that would be totally. I awesome. think so too. Um, what are the concrete steps or ideas that that we can take to start treating the outdoors and our wild places like a trust? What what are the things that you what what are the things that one values? You know, do you value the access? Do you value um, you know, the ability to be out in these places, uh, alone, you know, what are the values that draw you outside? And I think it's then just, just giving back to the things that fit within those values. And it's going to be different for everyone else. Everyone has relationships to the environment and there's ways to articulate what that looks like, but there's also a ton of common ground on, um, you know, I mean, geez, like you stand in Monument Valley, like it doesn't matter where someone comes from, they're going to be awestruck or, you know, this is quite a powerful experience. And I think those sort of, those sort of moments are opportunities to open these conversations about, let's talk about how we each relate to these places, because, you know, you think about national monuments, you think about federal lands, public lands, like there's so many different wide and varied user groups that come here that bring their own values. But like, what is the common thread is that people see the value in, you know, in the power that these places bring. And I think the other is just um, beginning that conversation more broadly to say that, you know, we have to address the impact that we're having. And here's a way to start, you know, and then how people are voting, you know, I think then looking at, you know, at local elections is that trails don't aren't just in the mountains. And these public spaces are not just in the mountains, but they're also our parks, there are communities. And I think it's this sense of duty to um, do that. And I think, you know, the thing is, is that we've been there before. You know, our country has invested a lot into these um, infrastructure and and social systems, you know, but we're kind of in a space where they've been pretty underfunded. And I think that that doesn't that isn't how it has to be. And it it can be different. And I and I believe this is a one small way to basically make that happen. But yeah, I think it'd be really cool to see uh, trails that aren't screwed up. Um, I think it's possible. I mean, in our work, um, you know, in, in the natives outdoors scene is that we started on Instagram sharing stories and photos and, um, we still do that. And I think one of the things is that, um, we're providing a sort of the beginning of a bridge of an insight of like what it's, what sort of the indigenous worldview of like these different landscapes are. And I think, um, you know, as people spend more and more time in places, uh, they begin to care about them in a deeper way and really begin mm-hmm. to, see the value in them. And I think that's the, that's the meeting point. That's the bridge. If like, we all care about these places, it might be happened differently. 
it might not express itself in the same way, but we have an opportunity to like work towards a shared interest. You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Len Nessifer. To learn more about what Len's doing, please go check out his Instagram at Len Nessifer. And also check out his work by following at Natives Outdoors. If you're a fan of today's show, please spread the word. Safety Third is to your ears what donuts are to your mouth. So, so good. So I guess that makes us ear donuts. Mmm, yummy. Anywho, tell your friends about the show, tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell everybody. And if you want to know more about what we're doing and what we've done, follow us on Instagram at safety third underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Alex Park edited this episode. Additional production help from Vanessa Barchfield. Music by my brother. Yes, my big, big brother. Brendan, if you bring ground coffee into my home, I will kick you out, O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight. Keep it loose. And remember, safety third. <laughs>